J.T. Crowley is talking books. On this show, you'll hear from emerging talent and seasoned veterans from around the world. They'll give you their take on the writing process and how to create the secret sauce of page-turning deliciousness. Let's get into that magical mixture of the art and science of creativity. Here's J.T. Crowley, author of The Smart Kids and your podcast host. Hello, I'm J.T. Crowley. And today I'm welcoming Mel Harrison from Florida in the United States about his spy novels, the Alex Boyd series. To date, there are five books out in the series, the latest being Spies Among Us. His first book, Death in Pakistan, was swiftly followed by The Ambassador is Missing, then Moving Target, and then Terror in Cairo. The background and framework are fictional, as are the characters. But the theme throughout all of the books is based on, maybe based on, what he experienced during his 28-year career with the US Department of State, in particular, the Diplomatic Security Service. Mel was assigned to various embassies. Uh, He was assigned to Saigon, Quito, Rome, London twice, Seoul and Islamabad. And in those embassies, he worked uh, in the realms of regional security officer. So you can start to see how this brilliant mind of his has worked to create this epic spy thriller series. It's extremely gripping, everybody. Following on from his involvement in the Diplomatic Security Service, Mel focused on corporate security and the assignments he undertook took him mainly to Latin America and the Middle East. Nowadays, he devotes his time to his writing and book promotions, possibly to get out from under the feet of his wife, Irene, (laughs) who also had a distinguished career in the US Department of State working at the same embassies albeit in a different field of expertise. For the purpose of the podcast, we're going to mainly focus on Mel's latest book, Spies Among Us, but we will touch upon the other four books in the series so that you can get a flavour of the whole spy series, the whole Alex Boyd series. But before we do, what I would like to do now is invite Mel onto the show so that he can talk a little about himself and why he wrote the series. Mel, come and join me. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm delighted that you've chosen my series to turn into a podcast. Um, Shall I start with uh, somewhat of my background? Would you like to tell us a little about yourself? Because these books are amazing, everybody. So tell us a little about yourself and why you wrote this spy thriller series. Okay, delighted. So after I went to uh, university and I joined the State Department, uh, then it was in the Office of Security, which years later morphed into the Bureau of Diplomatic Security, or DS for short. And um, I spent about 28 years in the State Department, a little over half abroad, which is exactly what I wanted. Uh, the thrill of living overseas and a massive attraction. Uh, I met my wife, uh, Irene, who was in management, an American, in Quito, Ecuador. That was my second tour, her first tour. And we got married and uh, managed to get joint assignments over the years at the various embassies you met. But I decided that when I wanted to, to write novels, I should draw on my experience. Now, as you said, they're all fictionalized, but um, the stories are close enough to the truth. If I wasn't involved with it, I know of others who were at different posts. I drew on uh, people I knew in the, the service to create characters, but not necessarily at that embassy. So if there's a character in Death in Pakistan, maybe the person I met at another embassy. Uh, and then fictionalized it, um, for better or worse. 
Um, so I enjoyed writing them. You know, it, it's a chance to relive places I've been and discuss things, but I also wanted to have a chance to educate the general population about what it's like to be a diplomat, often serving in dangerous situations. Because I know most people don't know much about the State Department, and uh, they know even less about diplomatic security. That's understandable. So I use this as a vehicle to, to um, provide a little bit of education while still writing something that's stimulating and exciting for them. And kicks you out of Irene's way. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Mel, let's go to uh, Spies Among Us. There are 46 chapters in this book, everybody. So this is a meaty book, and it's packed full of action, which you would expect a spy book to be. So what I want to do is look at eight of the chapters that stuck out most to me so that the listeners, you know, you listeners, you the audience, can get a reasonable concept as to what this book, what these series are about. So let's go to chapter one, The Rendezvous, which is set in Oxfordshire, England. In fact, most, if not all, of this book is set in the UK. No doubt you drew upon your own experiences when you were at the US Embassy in London. Now, the scene, to start off with, it starts off with April Scott pacing around a hotel room in Oxfordshire. She's nervous about her forthcoming meeting with Lars Nielsen, her contact. Um, she has in her old plaid skirt a small SD card. What's on that card? Hmm. Um, but so she fears the information on the drive is all Lars wants despite him telling her he loves her. Is he romantically using her to obtain the secret information she's been passing him? Or does he genuinely care for her? So the book starts off with a complex love conundrum. April has a colour-coded card that indicates she has access to top-secret information, as did all political officers in her embassy section. So, Mel, my question really is, why did you kickstart the book off in this fashion, you know, a touch of unrequited romance with passing secret details? And why the character Lars, the Swedish owner of an electronic company, an international electronics company? Is this uh, about the UK and the Swedish governments throwing the Russian influence in Northern Europe? Okay, that's a good question. Um, most thrillers start by introducing your protagonist, but not all. Indeed, some great books uh, don't introduce the protagonist until the second or third chapter. I believe that thrillers not only be about plot, but about characters. I did want Lars Nielsen to be real stars in the book, even though they're, quote, bad guys. I wanted to develop, introduce them and develop their personality early on. They'll continue through the entire book. Um, April, um, as the readers get into the book, will find that she's not very experienced in life with love affairs. She's in her third, late thirties. She has too many boyfriends. So the fact that Lars has uh, endeared himself to her is vital to her. She's upset in the opening scene because she wants to take this to the next level. She wants to get married. And she's also uncomfortable passing top secret for Lars. She doesn't know yet that he's a Russian spy. He's what they call an illegal, like a mole. He's undeclared. He's been placed into the UK with a Swedish cover because he's a skilled linguist and he spent a number of years growing up in Sweden. He was recruited by the KGB as a youngster for the sole purpose of being activated at some point in the future. In this case, it was an opportunity for him to pair up with April Scott, who we met in London, and uh, the KGB realized early on 
she has access to a lot of top secret material. So he's got uh, the scam going is that he's Swedish and that um, they are also worried about uh, Soviet efforts to uh, move against the West. And so the information she provides is supposedly just to reaffirm what the Swedish government, his friends in the Swedish government, already know. She's uncomfortable with this and probably in her heart realizes this can't be exactly so. In one point, even first chapter even mentions, surely your diplomats in Washington can, uh, can go to the State Department or the White House and confirm what's what with the U.S. relations towards Russia, towards Sweden, et cetera. But so now she's kind of at an emotional breaking point. She's brought the material once again in on the, on the, the flashcard, uh, the thumb drive. But um, she wants a more, more of a commitment from Lars. So it's a, it's a moving chapter, very moving chapter for her. And it was a chance for me to introduce two key characters early on. I thought it was a wonderful chapter, you know, a um, bit of a spy book and a bit of romance here as well. Um, Mel, I want to go on to now uh, chapter three. Uh, this is a powerful chapter and you headed it up the offer. And for me, the opening scene got my attention. Like, you know, an opening scene in any chapter should grab a, somebody's attention. <clears throat> and we're in Washington, D.C. Alex is meeting with Jim Riley. Now, Jim Riley is the director of Diplomatic Security State Department. And they're talking about the newly appointed Undersecretary of State for Management, Dennis Hager. Where does his loyalties lie? Now, that's a good question, everybody. The New York Times has put out a story that the Russians have arrested one of their own SVR um, officers. And SVR um, is the modern version of the KGB. They're claiming he was a CIA spy. This is the second um, arrest this year, and it's only March. Who was behind the leak to the paper? A viper with a personal axe to grind? Mel, this is a very, very important chapter, uh, you know, for you as a writer and for Alex, the protagonist, because here comes Alex, the main character here. Tell us more about this chapter. Okay, it, it sets the stage for the relationship between uh, Alex Boyd, my protagonist, and Jim Riley, as you said, the director. But it, Jim was Alex's boss in Pakistan. Uh, which is in the very first book, Death in Pakistan, when there was a huge terrorist attack on the embassy. They've remained close over the years. And indeed, in the second book, The Ambassador is Missing, Riley comes to his political aid when he runs afoul of um, embassy management. So I'm showing a continuing relationship. And in this book, we see through Alex's eyes that Jim is physically deteriorating. His health is no longer good, but his mind is still sharp. And he's definitely worried about um, Soviet espionage. We learned that um, the Russians know what we, what our intelligence services in the West have stolen from them. And, uh, and we know this ourselves. So the fact that they're able to some of the CIA's agents in Moscow is deeply troubled. This indicates a, a tremendous leak. If not um, knowing exactly who the, who the spies are in the SDR, at least the Russians have been smart enough. They've got enough information to put two and two together and narrow it down. So in, in this case, Riley is, is deeply upset He'll be going to a meeting later. He alludes to that in the uh, in chapter um, three, and um, he hopes to learn more about it. Riley is concerned about his friend Jim. He's very concerned and uh, wants to be supportive in any way that he can. He's equally concerned uh, about the allegations against Dennis Hager, 
in the prior chapter two, uh, I've outlined what those allegations are. They're not proven. And unfortunately, in the real world, that's often the case. There are rumors, there's innu innuendo, you get partial stories, things are never clear. And um, unlike in television shows where everything's wrapped up in an hour, in the real world, it can take months or years to narrow down these um, espionage threats. So that's where we go. Absolutely. I mean, in any any um, spy or espionage scenario, this it's always murky waters. Yeah, exactly. Um, go Let's go to Chapter 11, Mel. First impressions. Mel, I found this uh, chapter absolutely absorbing. Uh, we've got Alex, the main character, and his wife, Rachel, who's a political counsellor at the US Embassy in London. And they are meeting and introducing themselves to the staff at the embassy in London. Security around the embassy is tight, as a lot of terrorists know exactly where the embassy is, where it's located. The ambassador tends to be a political appointment and are generally people of substantial wealth and political influence. But it's the deputy chief of mission, picked carefully by the Department of State, who really does run the show behind the scenes. Now, this chapter is giving us an idealistic eye view of the day-to-day -day operational activities of the embassy, the complex logistics, so to speak. Um, for you, Mel, was this an important chapter to support the storyline as it unfolds? Yeah, John, I, I, I think it is. And again, it's an opportunity to let the readers know a little bit about the State Department. In this case, um, we're just a few months into a new administration, a new presidency. So he doesn't have all his political appointees named yet, including the American ambassador to the UK. So the deputy chief of mission, uh, Bainbridge Wellington, uh, has an even greater responsibility. And he's been there for a number of years. Uh, I also set the stage with Rachel being um, the political counselor. That's basically the number three position in the embassy. But without an ambassador, she's now number two. Um, I called it first impressions because it, we, when we start a new job, any of us, we all know that first impressions are important. And in the foreign service, you're transferring every few years. So despite what your quarter reputation may be, you have a real chance, for better or worse, of making an impression on day one. And hopefully it'll be a good one because if you make a, a mediocre or bad impression, that's gonna stick around for a while until you have a chance to prove yourself. So both Rachel and Alex are dressed to the nines um, they show up, they're sharp, they, um, they, they meet the challenge. Of, they uh, do. And of course, you know, first impressions always count, that's what they say. And what you don't realise, everybody, is that before um, Alex and Rachel turn up at the embassy, there's a little bit fanatics going on between the two of them. Hmm, a little bedside play, and we're not going there. Go and read the book. <laughs> yes. Mm. Yeah. Let's have a little play in bed and then let's get dressed up and yeah, go. The romance the between the Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> Mel, chapter 21, Red Flag. For me, this is a very, very important chapter. Now, this is a short chapter. but And here we see um, Rachel, um, Alex's wife, temporarily taken on the role as the deputy chief of mission, as you've already said, so she's now second in charge at the embassy. But that's not the main play in this chapter, is it? What for me is the main issue is Anna Battle's doubts about Lars Nielsen. Is he Swedish? He seems to know very little about Swedish politics the other night. 
So as the CIA station chief, and she would be third in command in the embassy, she raises a red flag against him. And she wants Alex, who's in security and raises a security officer, to covertly investigate without raising any alarms. It's an intriguing little storyline, and it's got a lot to it, hasn't it? It, it does. And um, the chapter shows, uh, along with other chapters where Alex interacts with the CIA, that uh, a mission overseas is really a team effort. Uh, I hate reading other novels where there's one protagonist who literally saves the world by himself. My experience is that rarely happens. <laughs> so teamwork. Alex is working. Yeah. So Alex is indeed State Department. That's what diplomatic security is all about. It's where they, they're housed. But any regional security officer like Alex has to have a very good relationship with the CIA station that's in the embassy. And in London, it's a large one, as you might expect. Um, the U.S. and the U.K. have probably the closest relationship imaginable. So we share a lot of information and work together closely. Um, Anna Battles, not really in the, in the chain of command. I used, mentioned she was third. It's a powerful position. I mean, she's a very experienced officer. But um, the CIA is its entity, but they come under the authority of the ambassador and deputy chief of mission. So Anna is very experienced. Um, Battles is her married name. Her, her maiden name is Lundquist. And uh, she comes from a Swedish family, although she was born in America, as did were her parents. Grew up in Minnesota, which has got a lot of Swedes. So from time to time, they spoke Swedish at, at home. And she had a, she did a junior year abroad in Stockholm. And then her first, one of her early assignments with the CIA was in Stockholm. So she's quite a linguist. She speaks other languages. So at a cocktail party talking to Lars Nielsen, she detects some grammatical errors, which shouldn't happen to a native Swede. She then kind of tests the waters a little bit and, and mentions some historical, political, and economic information. And she thinks his, his answers are kind of perfunctory, more like textbooks answers and personal answers of someone who's a businessman having lived through a socialist period of government in uh, Sweden, which was the 60s, 70s. At any rate, it, it, her antenna are up. So she mentions it to Alex. Well, because Lars is getting married to April Scott, a foreign service officer, he has to have a background investigation done by the State Department. That's not negotiable. Anytime uh, an officer with a clearance marries a foreigner. There's a background investigation. The person knows it. They cooperate. They fill out the forms. So Anna's worried that maybe Lars, maybe Lars isn't all he's claiming to be. And she mentions it to Alex because it's the State Department that does the clearance. So that's the important part. This is really the first time in the book that... Um, People are focusing on Lars and wondering, is he who he claims to be? Absolutely. But let's get the readers to find out for themselves. Yes. Let's go to um, the chapter, The Sting. Now, I get the feeling that Alex and his team, and they've already said, you know, anybody who operates in the diplomatic service, you know, it's not just a one-man show, it's a team. And here we emphasise the team. So we get the feeling that Alex and his team at the US Embassy in London are on to April and Lars. Little romantic dalliances are at various points across the English uh, landscape. So there's an eavesdropping exercise done on their phone calls with a set-up information as an interesting ploy. Uh, Mel, would you care to embellish on this idea? You know, they've thrown a little um, oh, trap here, haven't they? And that was quite deliberately done. 
What's your viewpoint on this? Yes, exactly. Well, the secret to um, eventually making an arrest to finding out who's leaking the information is you want to catch them in the act if you can. I mean, sometimes you can do it electronically, uh, but sometimes you, you want to capture people in face-to-face -face meetings. So they, um, they basically throw in some bogus information with tidbits of reality, give it a high clearance, and they make sure that uh, April Scott sees it on the assumption that it's such good information, she'll pass it on to Lars. And indeed, the trap is, is sprung. She does. She calls him, and they arrange to meet. And she's got her, uh, again, another thumb drive, which she's copied the information from a, uh, a State Department cable, and she's going to pass it to him. This is a classic scene, as you said, of cooperation. Um, when I was in London, uh, from the, I was there twice for three years, each three years in the 80s, three in the 90s. Um, it was so I, good you came back. <laughs> you're not kidding. It was so was, good, everybody. He came back. <laughs> I could live there full time. Yeah, it's wonderful. Um, I've thrown so, you now. <laughs> Some of my best contacts, my, my closest relations were with Special Branch. Of course, Special Branch now has been folded into the counterterrorism branch. But back then and back when I set the book, they were still a separate entity. And, um, you know, Special Branch's remit is counterintelligence, counterterrorism, and they're very good at it. So I have the scene here where they, um, they're following Lars and they're following April. And it's all coordinated with the American embassy, who in turn has coordinated with Washington. So we're all working on the same page. Um, but in, in, in this, this scene, ultimately, it's down to the British to do the work. I mean, Alex can't appear when they're about to make the arrest because April and Lars know him. They recognize his face. He has Absolutely. to keep his distance. And besides, he's an American in the embassy. He has no authority to arrest anybody in Britain. Um, so it's down to our partners, our cousins. And um, the Special Branch does an excellent job of keeping tabs on the two of them. Alex is at Scotland Yard, uh, in this case, along with the, the FBI uh, attache at the embassy, who has a, only a very minor role to play up to this point. Um, but I do bring them in because it's realistic. And um, sure enough, they, they spring the trap. Uh, and they, they do so in a, in a wonderful real pub. In fact, let me mention, if you can indulge me, in the five books, I have a lot of, <laughs> I have a lot of restaurant scenes. You do. Real restaurants. And my wife and I have eaten in all those restaurants. And every meal that Alex and Rachel eat, We've had there. You've had that. I yeah. wondered that. I wondered. Um, oh, yeah. Can we go to chapter 36, Mel? Because the plot really does thicken here. Um, you know, and it's headed up another traitor. Because this is where it's called Spies Among Us. There's more than one, everybody. Anna Battles and Alex spread their suspicious nets um, further afield. They have um, their beady eyes on Washington for more traitors, or should I say suspicious traitors. Dennis Hager, the powerful undersecretary of management, is still under the radar. But now, so is Wakefield Summers. Now, Wakefield Summers, everybody, is the Deputy Secretary of State. And with his dubious background, um, did the Russians or the East German Stasi and uh, know about his misgivings from the past and have and blackmailed him to spy for them. You know, you've now got a twist in this plot. Why? Why have you done this? What's going on here? I deliberately wanted to make it um, complicated. I didn't want merely a linear plot 
where we only are dealing with, with uh, April Scott. So if you think back to the beginning of the book, we have two issues. One, the, um, the theft of top secret information from the U.S. and NATO. But two, the arrest of CIA spies working within the SVR, the Soviet Intelligence Service, in Moscow. Now, there's no way that April Scott could know who those people are in Moscow. In fact, even the CIA station in London has no way of knowing who these people are, the CIA spies in Moscow. So that information has to be coming from someplace else. So we have two parallel stories that come together uh, in the end. So I okay. created I created a scene where, in this case, we're focusing on Wakefield Summers because he has a background in the CIA and he has a background from his past. His past, a pro personal problem that is a very blackmailable problem. So let's keep it out and let people read it for themselves. Um, I, I, I found the uh, last chapter we're going to go to, Russian Response, and this is um, you, Mel, imagination at your best. And this chapter is simply breathtaking. You know, with, with April and Lars arrested at the Royal Standard Pub outside of London, Wakefield Summers is arrested by the FBI following his dead drop use to inform Nikolai Petrov, his contact, an SAV operative in the Russian embassy in Washington. Um, Russian executions on foreign soils we're talking about. Putin's impatience with traitors. Did you enjoy composing this scene? Spill the beans here. I enjoyed every bit of it. I thought you did. As you know, reading it, I've developed not only the American characters, but the Russian characters too. Mm. I give them a little legend, a little background, because we're all... We're all human. Some are evil, <laughs> and some are good guys. But I think it's important not to create plastic characters. Um, you know, that's that's just too easy, and, and it's not hard work as a writer to do. But it's inept work. Yes. So, so I uh, I created not only Lars Nielsen, but the senior uh, SVR officers in London, and then I even have some background with the two. Um, SVR assassins who are really Spesnok's army guys on loan to the SVR. Okay, um, let's go to these guys, these SVR okay. guys, because this is chapter 44, Life or Death. The safe house, the attack, Rachel's defense against the Russian killers. This is you at your best here, isn't it? Thank you. Well, yeah, so I created... This is you at your best. I've created Sergei and Victor. These are the yeah. two assassins in the Russian army. And because they're in Spesnats, they are required to learn foreign languages. In this case, they both speak passable English and pretty good Lithuanian. So they come to the UK as Lithuanians with passports, etc. And the goal is to kill Lars Nielsen as a message to other Soviet uh, Russians or <laughs> Russian spies. Um, do not defect. Do not compromise yourself. And I base this on um, what um, what Putin has ordered. You had uh, Skripal, who was killed, in, who was attacked in Salisbury with uh, polonium, the poison, and Litvinenko, who was killed. He was uh, poisoned. Uh, sorry, uh, Skripal was Novichok, my mistake. Uh, yeah. Litvinenko, polonium in the millennium tell Grosvenor Square right across from the embassy and they dropped the, the radioactive material in his teeth. So the Russians are very vicious when it comes to retaliating and frankly they just don't seem to care about collateral damage or the fallout. No. The Brits who just might be there and in fact in the Salisbury event there were a lot of Brits who were seriously uh, ill I think one died yeah. um from uh, from the poisoning, so the fact that they're going to go after Lars, and he's in a British safe house, maybe the safe house is a bit of a stretch, but um, but you know they would at least consider it, and so in this case, I have them deciding to do it, 
it's it's that important to Putin that they 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 kill him and send the message. Okay. Uh, Mel, I think we've uh, given the listeners enough of a tease, a uh, bit of a flavour of your fifth book in you know the Alex Boys series. Can we briefly look at the others? Uh, sure. Starting off with the fourth book in this series, Terror in Cairo. Now, in your description, you talk about a vicious terrorist organisation determined to thwart a Middle East conference in Cairo, tempted to stop any chance of a successful conference outcome involving peace with Israel. Alex Boyd and his diplomatic service colleagues try to stop waves of bloody attacks. Alex is tasked with identifying the leaders of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, EIJ, by leading a team of US Navy SEALs into the harsh deserts of Libya to terminate them. Briefly tell us about this book. Okay, I should first uh, put it in, in context a little bit. Everybody knows that the Secret Service protects the president and vice president. What most people don't know is diplomatic security protects the Secretary of State and a lot of visiting VIPs. If the Prime Minister of the UK came to America, Secret Service would protect he or she. But if the Foreign Secretary came and needed protection, that would be diplomatic security, BS. So we have a lot of skills in uh, protecting people at conferences, and that's what Terra and Cairo begins. Um, the Middle East Peace Conference, the secretaries there, we have Congress, U.S. congressmen and senators as part of the delegation. EIJ, Egyptian Islamic Jihad, is a real group. It exists. And they decide they're not going to tolerate a conference that might result in peace with Israel. It's their, their foe, and they just have to. So they attack the conference. They attack this conference center. They attack the hotels. They're repeated attacks. So Alex and his colleagues who are protecting the delegation have to work with the Egyptian police in fighting off these waves of attacks. Um, the scenario I've set up, the shootouts, it's based on the training that we've all had in diplomatic security. And um, I think it's pretty true to form. And again, you work as a team. Uh, as you know from the, the chapter, I don't have Alex defeating 18 yep. terrorists all at once. He's got colleagues, the Egyptians are involved, but there are casualties, a lot of civilian casualties. Um, moving on, you mentioned Alex going into the desert with the SEALs. Um, what I need to mention is when Alex was a child, his father was a CIA station chief and he was assigned to Cairo, where Alex spent four years as a young teenager. As a result, Alex speaks Arabic. When he joined the U.S. Navy before the State Department, he was in intelligence because of his Arabic language skills, and he was assigned to a SEAL unit. Now, Alex is not a Navy SEAL. He's clear about that, but he does speak Arabic. He's got fighting skills, and so when the, the president decides we need to retaliate for this EIJ attack, on the American delegation, as well as the other delegations in Cairo, we're gonna go into Libya, where EIJ has the headquarters, and we're gonna kill them. Because of their, uh, Alex's uh, language skills, and the fact that he was there in Cairo, knows a lot about EIJ, they asked him to accompany the SEALs as an intelligence officer. But you know, when you're in the thick of things, the enemy doesn't differentiate between intel and a shooter. And, and Alex has to fight to defend his life. Let's go to the third book in the series, Moving Target. Now, Alex and his wife, Rachel Smith, operate in Paris, have been given the opportunity. Plans, however, um, you know, best laid plans never go according to plan. Their lives are at risk due to a Sicilian mafia leader. Alex's boss and wife, Henry and Giselle Ducat, go missing. Are they kidnapped or are they on the run? Hmm. Fascinating plot. Thank you. I, I, this, is, this is different. I decided to kind of stretch myself, but at the same time, free myself. In the first two books, I have Alex in a traditional setting, an embassy. So there are constraints. You know, there are real meetings. There are real regulations. Um, a real established chain of command. And I said, you know what? Some of my readers are telling me 
they like everything I've written, but maybe I need to get away from the embassy structure a little bit. So I put them on the boat to leave without pay. They have fabulous job offers in Paris. Alex working for the wealthiest investment banker in France. Rachel works for his wife who runs her own fashion house. Since they're both reasonably fluent in French, um, this is a real opportunity. They get the opportunity because by total coincidence, they're on their honeymoon. Sorry, they're on their anniversary, one year anniversary. And they say, yeah, they saved this investment banker's life from an armed attack. Only later did they find out this was not a one-off. Oh, so here we go again. You see, everybody got a little bit of romance twisted in here. Hmm. I think you, I think you like the romantic sex scenes I've written. Ooh, shh. <laughs> um, the second book in this series, Mel, you know, the ambassador is missing. This story takes place in Rome when you, you know, you've been to Rome. An easy assignment, you might think, um, initially, particularly after the events in Pakistan and the book where Alex nearly loses his life. The assignment, however, transpires to be something more sinister, doesn't it? Indeed it does. Um, while the ambassador is a, a great guy, he's a political appointee, and he met Alex uh, in Washington when Alex was studying Italian, and the ambassador was waiting for his um, confirmation hearings. So they bond them. When he when Alex arrives in Rome, he finds out that his boss, the deputy chief of mission, was a very is a very good friend of a, the political counselor in the first book, Death in Pakistan. He hates Alex's guts before he's even met him, because he blames Alex for deep sixing the career of his good friend from Pakistan. They had served together in Vienna. Um, and so he's watching Alex very carefully and really looking for an excuse to get rid of Alex. Meanwhile, the ambassador, a political appointee, isn't used to all this security. And like all political appointees, has a hard time accepting it. He wants more freedom. He wants to get away, at least on the weekends. So the deputy chief of mission Alden Chandler connives with the management counselor to, to give him that freedom. They give him an embassy car he can drive. The ambassador lies to his Italian police bodyguards, tells him he's not going anywhere on the weekend, and they sneak him out of the house so he can go out into the Italian countryside. Of course, it backfires, and he gets kidnapped by the uh, New Red Brigade, which was a real organization a follow-up to the original Red Brigade, typical Marxist organization. So Alex is kind of left um, out in the wilderness trying to get the ambassador back, works with his very good Italian contacts, but he's got the DCM looking over his shoulder every second, hoping Alex will make a faux pas so he can kick him out of the country. Complicating this is the FBI comes in seeking glory and, and wanting to claim credit, but they're, they're out of their depth uh, in dealing in, in Italy and trying to get the ambassador back. There you so, go. Yeah. Let's go to the first book in this series. Now, Mel and I had a little bit of a laugh about this, everybody, because when we were talking about this book, I accidentally said, Death in Paradise. Now, of course, Death in Paradise is a TV program. And we laugh about it. So I said, I'm going to call it Death in Paradise. But in actual fact, the first book is Death in Pakistan. <laughs> um, and I surmise that you gleaned uh, so much of the storyline here from your experience in your, you know, uh, when you're in Islamabad, the US embassy in Pakistan. In the description, you have Alex as a deputy regional security officer. Now, Alex and Rachel are not married here in this first book. She's a press officer. She's an accomplished athlete and an intellectual powerhouse. The embassy comes under attack, and Alex's job is there to protect the staff and the embassy. Can you very, very briefly, Mel, tell us about this first book? Yeah. Um, as you noted, it, I based it not only on some of my personal experience, 
but on a very tragic event that happened 10 years before I got there. In 1970, oh, I set this book, the beginning of the series, in the early 1990s. Just arbitrarily decided to do that. Um, but in 1979, a mob of 5,000 people attacked the American embassy. Um, the, the cause was the Grand Mosque in Mecca had actually been overrun by terrorists. Now, this had to do with the Sunni-Shia rivalry in Iran was behind it on the Shia side. But the Russians were very clever. You might remember they were still, uh, or, or they were, yeah, they were in Afghanistan. They put out on their disinformation service that the American CIA had invaded the Grand Mosque. Totally false. So our embassy was burned down. We had four people killed, including two local employees, a U.S. Marine and a military man in our mission. Flash forward, to 1989, and I was there, and uh, Salman Rushdie was about to publish Satanic Verses in America. Now, the British had been dealing with uh, Rushdie and protecting him for a number of years already in the UK, but this was the first time the book was going to appear in America. The extreme religious fanatics in Pakistan wouldn't have any of that. And they decided they were going to give us a petition protesting it, and it would be a massive demonstration, about 8,000 people. Well, we found out about a week before this, and uh, we realized there was a 50-50 chance from intelligence that uh, this would turn violent, which it did. Uh, but we decided, let's accept the petition. Maybe we can defuse this. So we closed the embassy for the day. We only had our emergency action committee, the small group in the embassy, but the petition was being delivered across town to the American center. That's our cultural center. And that's where I was to accept this petition along with a few of our cultural center employees. And, um, and we had lots of extra police and guards that day. At any rate, it all turned to hell. They attacked the center, this went on for hours, broke all the windows, burned the cars in the parking lot, and um, it caught our attention. We were busy. So I based it on that. But I decided that a riot was not enough for my book. So I have a rogue element within the Pakistan intelligence service, ISI, behind this. And what they really want to do is attack the embassy with, with terrorists. Why do they want to do that? because this colonel, who's the head of the rogue element, holds us responsible for not backing Pakistan in the 71 Pakistan-India war. We had the resources in the Indian Ocean, but so did the Russians. And both sides exercised some restraint. We faced down each other. In the case of the US, we had a real carrier battle group there. But that's not good enough for this colonel. Uh, ISI colonel. So he wants to teach America. Oh, so I should put it in context. Uh, when the book opens up, we are increasing our uh, relationship with India at the cost of Pakistan. We're giving the military aid and assistance in cutting Pakistan's. I got to tell you, this is a real issue all the time, still is to this day. Because in Pakistan, you don't always have a democracy. You frequently have um, dictatorships. And when the army is running the country back in Washington, elements in Congress are not happy with giving aid to Pakistan. Mm. Meanwhile, India, for almost its, almost its entire existence, has been a democracy. So the setting is real. The conflict, political conflict, is real. The riots have really occurred. And uh, I set this up. And also, I, I should say, you mentioned some of, April, of uh, Rachel's background. When I created her, knowing I would have she and Alex through the entire series, I didn't want to create a damsel in distress. In distress. She's, um, she's tall. She's got good muscles. She's an athlete like Alex. Both are really intellectually strong. And Rachel knows some martial arts from her time days in Hong Kong and Beijing. And uh, she's an aggressive female. 
She knows what she likes. She can fight. And I decided to throw her into harm's way in several of the books. And she has to get her way out of it. It's not to say Red Alex doesn't come to help her many times, but she can hold her own. She can hold her own. I think the female raiders like that. Absolutely. Um, Mel, you know, the series, the Alice Boys series, is fascinating. And I hope everybody, having listened to what Mel has been talking about and their podcast, you can get the feel that these, this whole series, this Alex Boyd series, is action-packed. It's a thriller, and it's drawn on a lot of experiences from Mel's own um, stays in the various embassies that he's worked at. Are there any more books coming down the line, Mel? In this well, series? Have, yeah, yeah. I have uh, two or three books in mind. One I wrote about a quarter of, but I switched to another one. The, the, the one I'm working on now, uh, I'm doing it slowly because I'm, I'm dealing more with promotion now than writing, but um, it, it's set in New Orleans. This will be my only domestic setting. Ooh. And it's a murder, a murder of someone that worked for Rachel in Washington. And uh, Alex and Rachel are there to help the New Orleans police solve the murder and bring the uh, the murderer to justice. But some wow. of the others overseas again. Oh, can't wait it's, to see those. In fact, um, maybe in London. Oh, you love London. Um, I do. <laughs> um, Alex, sorry, um, you're not Alex. The character's Alex. Mel, <laughs> where can people get your books from? Uh, you can go to Amazon.com. They're available in both paperback and the e-reader version, Kindle version, uh, at different price settings. So uh, whichever version you like, it's available. Okay. There you go, everybody. Mel Harrison, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to me about your brilliant series, the Alex Boyd series, the five books, in particular, Spies Among Us, the one you brought out earlier on this year. I'm JT Crowley. Thanks for listening, watching, wherever you're in the world. So until next time, stay safe. <laughs>